You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Welcome, friend. You are listening to episode 116 of the Business for Good podcast. Now, before we get to this riveting conversation, and I promise it is riveting, I want to first thank everyone who got in touch with me about the last episode on solar geoengineering. If you didn't listen yet to episode 115, it is certainly a controversial one, and listener feedback ranged everywhere from being in love with the idea to saying they think it is total madness. I appreciate and welcome that diversity of opinion. And again, if you didn't listen and you want to know what all the controversy is about, go back and take a listen to episode 115 after this episode. Make Sunsets, the company featured in that episode, certainly has quite the story. Now, speaking of quite the story, if you listen to this show, you're probably already aware that about a week before this episode first airs on July 1st, 2023, the USDA gave its final approval to two cultivated meat startups to start selling their slaughter-free chicken. In what Time Magazine called, and I'm quoting, an historic milestone that will irrevocably change the landscape of food, it seems like we'll soon see the very first real meat grown from cells rather than slaughter sold in America. Five years ago, my book on this topic came out called Clean Meat, and I'm thrilled to tell you that Simon & Schuster is putting out an updated paperback edition, and yes, it will include this important new chapter in the struggle to divorce meat production from animal exploitation. So stay tuned. That's enough of a preamble before getting on to this episode since just like cultivated meat and what the movement it is trying to foment in this country and indeed around the world, what Ruby Labs is doing is also extremely cool and promising for the entire planet. What started with a small grant from the National Science Foundation to two twin sciency sisters barely out of college is now a startup employing dozens of people that so far has raised more than $13 million to revolutionize how we make clothing. Here's how it works. You already know that plants take in CO2, they convert it into their own biomass, which we humans often like to turn into clothing. Think from cotton and other plants that we like to wear. But what if we could bypass the plants and just capture CO2 being emitted from a factory and convert it with enzymes into fabrics that we could then wear without having to grow the plants in the first place? Not only would this magical process take emissions out of the atmosphere, but they'd also prevent the need to pollute in order to make the clothing that we currently buy. That is exactly what Ruby Labs is doing, displacing the need to grow cotton by harnessing the power of biotech fermentation to capture carbon dioxide from factories and convert it into textiles. As you'll hear in this conversation, Ruby CEO Nika Mashouf started the company with her twin sister, Leela, and they are already partnered with major brands like H&M. It really is incredible. So get ready to be impressed by the Mashouf sisters and see what they're up to. I will let Nika tell you their story herself. Nika, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's really great to be on with you. When I first saw a photo of you with your co-founder, I thought, wow, these people look really alike. I don't know which one is (laughs) Nika. And then I started reading more and it turns out that your co-founder is actually your twin sister. Yes, identical twins. (laughs) And it's been great in case you're wondering. (laughs) Everyone always asks. 
I am wondering. I mean, it's tough. Like there's a company that's called Hungry Planet that you may have heard of. It's a plant-based meat company. Mm-hmm. And it's run by Todd and Jody Boyman, who, Boyman, who are brothers and sisters, not twins, but they are brother and sister. And I always think having a company with family is a really difficult thing, right? Like you can't, you can't really fire your family members. It's like team members can be fired if they don't perform, but family members, you can't really get rid of them. And so I'm wondering, like, how does this work? I mean, I presume you all must have been pretty down with each other in advance of starting the company. But how does it work? Like, if you have disputes, if there's some disagreement on something, like, what's the mechanism for resolving something with your twin sister here? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. And I also see a lot of companies started with siblings or family members. And there's definitely always a unique set of challenges that come with it. But I think the benefits of it, if it's the right partnership, are very strong. And I think when you're thinking about a co-founder, and I, when I was originally starting the company, I was actually like looking for co-founders initially. I didn't even know that I would end up starting it with my sister. But I was thinking through like what's important in a co-founder relationship. And trust is so important. And being able to discuss and bounce ideas and have conflicts in a positive way, all of those things are critical to having a strong co-founding relationship. And I think that is what enables me and my sister Layla to be such good co-founders. It's like unbelievable level of trust and we just understand each other. And we can, we like to say we can argue very efficiently because we've done it like our whole lives. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you, like I, I have found in my own marriage that it is not a good idea to work together. And we have very similar interests and kind of similar professions in some respect, actually. But when we've tried to do projects together, I can assure you it did not promote marital harmony. And, and, and so of course we do not have the relationship that twin siblings would have, but I admire that. So what was it about Lewa that led you to want to start the company? Like, obviously you're implying the company was your idea. You were looking for a co-founder, you went out in the world and what you were looking for was actually right there in your own home. So what was it about her? Like, why, what is the complementary skill set that you all have? Like, what's the division of labor between the two of you with this company? Yeah. Yeah, I really think it ended up being such a perfect match that it was almost like as if it was perfectly planned our whole lives. (laughs) And maybe I'll like touch on that. We just have like very harmonious skill sets for exactly what we're building. And I think that ended up coming out as I was first like started to conceptualize the idea. And then I would just brainstorm with Layla sometimes and we prototype the tech together even before she joined like full time. And it was just so clear that it was a perfect mesh of our skill sets. Maybe if it's helpful, I can start with my background and Layla's and sort of how it started. Yeah, sure. What What is the background? Do you all have similar interests cool. like you hear? Like, did, did you ever see, did you ever see the movie Three Identical Strangers? No. <laughs> it's It was like a CNN documentary. It's an amazing story, actually. It's about these triplets who were all separated at birth and adopted into different families. And even though they never knew each other as children, it turns out like, they ended up doing similar things in life and two of them even ended up going to the same college and it wasn't like a college near them. It was kind of like a small school that not a lot of people go to. So do you find that you and and Layla have similar interests and like, what what was it that led you to go into this? Like what was your background versus hers and why do you think she would be not just redundant, but actually complementary to you? Yeah, totally. We ended up going into different fields. And so I think that pairing ended up being really great. I think We both started with a strong passion and inspiration in nature and like natural sciences. My 
take on that. And my inspiration was always in how we can learn from natural systems and apply those insights to make our human-based manufacturing and materials production and sort of more of these industrial systems be more planet positive and sustainable. So I really focused in on energy and material science and also business. Starting from when I was 15 years old, I published my first paper in artificial photosynthesis at a national lab here in the Bay Area. And that was really like this initial spark of me being really passionate about the space. Well, let me just interrupt you if you don't mind here, Nika. So what I heard you just say is that mm-hmm. at 15 years old, you published a paper. I presume this is like a peer-reviewed published paper. Is that right? Like in an, it sounds yes, like you, yeah. by saying you published it like in an academic journal. It wasn't like in your local mm-hmm. newspaper. Uh, and, and so can, we'll, we'll link to this paper in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But what was the paper about? Like cool. at, at 15 years old, I can, I can assure you the things that I was thinking about were not publishing academic papers. So your parents must have yeah. done something, your parents must have done something right here that others did not. So why were you <laughs> like, why at 15? I don't know if you were old enough to know who Doogie Hauser is, but it sounds kind of like a Doogie Hauser type thing to know. You're shaking your head, but it's a TV show from when I, when I was a young, person. It was a TV show about a very precocious doctor who was extremely young and like graduated from medical school oh, nice. like as a teenager <laughs> and was like seeing patients who he was dramatically younger than. But anyway, publishing a, a peer-reviewed academic paper at age 15 sounds kind of like a Doogie Hauser type thing to do. What that in and of itself requires some explanation. So what was yeah, it? That, sure. yeah, what, I mean, I, I didn't, I don't think I knew the, about what an academic journal even was at 15, let alone that I could publish in one. Yeah. So, and I co-authored the paper. So basically that summer I had interned in a lab focused on artificial photosynthesis at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And I had like sought out that internship because I was so interested in being able to kind of like take natural systems and mimic them and apply them to energy and, and other things. So I had always really loved like renewable energy and concepts around that. I'd always just been like the person who was like tinkering with things, making like miniature solar powered things and messing around with electrical components and and things like that. So it was always just like a natural interest. It wasn't really any sort of like pressure from parents or anything to succeed or whatever. It was just like me following my interests. And I reached out to a bunch of different scientists at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab because I grew up around here, just trying to get to work in their lab and see what was up. And that summer, I was like so lucky to be able to intern in a lab and work on research around artificial photosynthesis. So basically, developing materials that could take sunlight to split water and develop like hydrogen and carbon-based fuels. And so that paper was around one of the materials that I helped research and do a lot of the development for that had like strong potential as a material that could split water and basically mimic photosynthesis. Very cool. That is really cool. So we know what your background was then, like some of the summers you're going to science camp basically rather than learning to play (laughs) tennis or anything. But what about Leila? Was she also interested in science? Like, was this something that you guys both grew up wanting to pursue? Yeah. Yeah. So she was also coming from a science background, but slightly different. She took her like nature inspiration to really be inspired by bi- biological systems and through that actually medicine. 
So her focus, and she also started from when she was 15 to doing research, was always more on sort of medical problems, therapeutics. She ended up focusing a lot on like nano drug delivery, brain tumors. She studied neuroscience at Johns Hopkins when she went to college. And then she most recently actually graduated from Harvard Medical School. So she really took like the medical route and has yeah, like very uh, strong bioengineering background that sort of paired up with my material science background. Mm. And it's like a perfect marriage for what we're doing at Ruby. Very cool. Yeah, I've heard of that medical school before. That's <laughs> cool. Yeah, good for her. So you, you mentioned what you're doing at Ruby. What is it? Just let's get the reveal here. So obviously, you two are very smart and very ambitious from a young age. So you want to do something that's going to help the world. So what is it specifically that Ruby is actually doing that's going to make the world a better place? Yeah. So at, at Ruby, we create basically as, as our vision, a world where human prosperity is planet positive through decarbonizing supply chains. And we're starting with the apparel industry as the third most CO2 polluting supply chain today. And the tech that we've developed and, and what we do at our core is inspired by how trees grow. When you think of a tree, it takes in CO2 and then uses that CO2 to produce various different materials and its structure. Inspired by that process, we use biochemical processes powered by enzymes to take carbon emissions, eat those carbon emissions, and make carbon-negative materials. And our first material that we're making is a textile. So when you say you're taking carbon emissions, you're not directly capturing from the air. You are seeking more concentrated sources of carbon emissions, right? So our technology actually works on anywhere between direct air capture, so like very dilute CO2, all the way up to very high concentrated. But our business model is to capture CO2 directly at manufacturing facilities. Okay. So that's typically so, so. around. Yeah, it's it's usually or the manufacturers we're working with are mainly textile mills, but also chemicals, manufacturers, energy food and beverage manufacturers, etc. The CO2 that comes out of those facilities out of the smokestack is usually like 8 to 20% CO2. Mm. So it's more than enough for our system. Cool. As opposed to the atmosphere generally, which is less than 1%. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Okay. That's really riveting. So you could theoretically set up shop on a textile plant, capture their CO2, and then create textiles for them to utilize and, and make a pair of jeans out of. Yeah, exactly. Right. So how do you do it? I know you're using bioreactors, but these are not bioreactors like what many listeners of the show would be thinking of, which are filled up with a liquid and they're growing cells and things like that. You're not doing that. So what's happening inside of the Ruby bioreactor that is taking CO2 from the smokestack of a textile company and and converting it back into more textiles. Yeah, so our tech is based on enzymes. So like you said, there's no cells in there. It's not really a typical bioreactor. It's a fully cell-free industrial biocatalysis system. And what that means is you, know, you have all these enzymes floating around in our system. They're stabilized using basically some polymer structures that we use to help keep the enzymes intact and active so that they can keep performing their functions even in this industrial environment. The first enzyme in the pathway grabs onto the CO2, does a chemical reaction on it, hands it to the next enzyme, and it basically goes down this cascade and turns that CO2 into the long cellulose chains that then we can make into fiber and textile. So this is a gaseous fermentation 
that you are at the end when you open up the bioreactor, there is a solid that is left in there. And what does it look like? Yeah. So you can you can actually think of this as like a continuous chemical process. So gas comes in one side. We have a few reactors that are like filled with enzymes and liquid. The intermediates go through. And then at the end, we separate out the solid cellulose. And I think the best example, like what the visual looks like, is if you put a piece of paper in water and sort of like melted it down in there, it's sort of like pulp. So that's exactly what it's called, cellulose pulp. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a solid. It comes out very easy to filter. And so you have a downstream process that mechanically dewaters that pulp and turns it into something that's more like a dry cellulose that you could then sell. Yeah. So actually, we like directly take that cellulose and put it into the fiber spinning process. Mm. It's a little known like big benefit actually for the textile industry that we don't have to dry the cellulose and ship it off somewhere else or because it's so energy intensive. Um, so that's also like a nice part about our system. We not only make the cellulose through a carbon negative process, but then we can skip some of the processing steps too for the next stages. That's cool. And so is the idea that you will then sell that that product as a B2B product for somebody else to make the pair of jeans? Or will we be able to one day buy a pair of jeans with the Ruby logo on the back where it would otherwise say Levi's? Yeah, so we're working with a lot of major apparel brands to develop right now sort of pilots and prototype collections. But ultimately, we would be a textile supplier to these brands to make Mm -hmm. the same garments that they would normally make just replaced with our material. And I think it's one important thing to note is the material we're making is actually the same as a good chunk of the material that they're already using. It's the third most common textile family in the world. It's called man-made cellulosic fibers. And we're just making that same textile. Yeah. And so the the cellulosic fibers that are human-made that you're referring to, that's lyocell, right? Exactly. Yeah. Lyocell, viscose, rayon. Right. Okay. And so you're basically creating kind of like rayon, but instead of making it through either, let's say, like trees or fossil fuels, you're just making it through this type of a gaseous fermentation process. That's exciting. Exactly. That's really exciting. Yeah. and I think, the big, I, I think the big exciting part of that to a lot of the brands we're working with, and I guess also just from the climate perspective, is when we replace those typical deforestation processes that today go into materials, it's not only that our material sequesters carbon, that's one great piece of the carbon impact, but because it can also replace a traditional manufacturing process that's so carbon intensive, it's both like this carbon mitigation plus carbon sequestration ability that I think is very special and what we're excited about, about driving carbon impact. Uh, very cool. And, and I presume, I, I, well, first, let me say my knowledge of fashion is nil. I, I have like a few shirts and I just wear them all the time. <laughs> and if, if you saw me more than once, I'd probably be wearing the same thing, honestly. So, but I know you have an intense interest in fashion. So was your motivation for starting this company more to do with your lifelong interest in fashion or your passion for protecting the planet? Like which came first for you in this case? Yeah, great question. The planet side came first. And as I was developing the technology, there was actually so many different avenues of materials we could make from CO2. And there still is. The technology we're building is a, is a platform 
So we can not only make cellulose from CO2, but we can make things like starches and proteins and lipids. So that's building materials, packaging, food, etc. And it was more of a kind of strategic business decision, like what industry do we focus on first? Um, and I think what was really unique about me and Layla's background growing up and growing up with like a family fashion brand is we had a really good sense of the issues facing the industry today, the need for more sustainable materials, and how much brands are spending to try and find and adopt these more sustainable materials. The reason that is, is just because apparel and fashion is so central to consumers' personal identity that over the last five years, as like the climate movement has been growing, it's been one of the main industries that has actually really started to move and try and adopt new solutions. And Typically, that's led to greenwashing because there hasn't been a lot of solutions. But what it shows is consumers are demanding like more green things. And at this point, it's sort of like greenwashing is called out a lot. So it needs to be like a real solution. Understood. Understood. So the company has raised a good amount of money. You've only been around for a few years, but you've already raised over $13 million, including closing a round in March of 2023. Not exactly the best time to be raising venture capital, very dry <laughs> markets, very dry capital markets right now, very tight, tight market to be raising in. So first, congratulations on your fundraising success. How many folks Thank work you. at the company now, Nika? And what are you doing? Like You're talking about these brands that you're partnering with. Who are you partnered with? And are these products commercialized yet? So how many people work there? And where can people get any any type of product that might have been made using your technology? Yeah, we're at about 25 people right now, mostly on the science and engineering side. And we've been really focused as a company on scaling the technology from where it was about a year ago, which was test tube scale, to now our pilot production scale, where we're able to generate material every month for these pilot partnerships and, and then continue to scale up. So to help people envision that, so if you were in test tubes, now are you in flasks or are you in bioreactors yet? Yeah, so now we're in reactors. Our system mm -hmm. is about a 50 liter system. It's slightly different than when you think of bioreactors because per liter in a biocatalysis system, you get so much more product. So you require like less volume overall in our system. So not apples to apples, but just to give you a sense of what scale we're at, um, sure. like volumetrically. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so you're, so you're creating, yeah. you're creating basic, you have a pilot plant basically, and you're creating material for these companies and are they experimenting with it or are they actually selling products that have your technology in it? Right. So at this scale, we're doing prototyping. So these brands are making garments using our material later this year. We'll be with a few brands moving up to more like capsule collections, which is a few more garments or early next year, thousands of garments per brands that would actually be available to consumers. What? So what we're working towards right now is commercialization. Great. What's the barrier? Is it just larger reactors that you need? Or is it something else that the company needs in order to actually get to the scale where somebody's going to go to H&M and buy some Ruby inspired jeans? Yeah, it's really the scale up. And that's what the team is laser focused on. Uh, because it's overall a very new technology, there's a lot that our team is developing for the first time. Luckily, enzyme-based systems have been around and been scaled in other industries very significantly. 
for like decades, like high fructose corn syrup and wastewater treatment and other production processes that use enzymes at a massive scale. So we can learn from those processes. But what's unique about our system is we've created a few innovations that allow us to build up a molecule or a polymer from like small pieces. And there's certain things that go into that that make it slightly complicated as we scale. So that scale up is the big piece that we're all focused on. And especially like rest of this year, as we move towards those larger scale available to the public collections, the whole team is very focused on scaling from even our pilot to like a demo scale. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. That's really exciting. I hope that I get to see that 50 liter reactor chugging away. I would really love to see what that cellulose pulp looks like. (laughs) Maybe if you have any photos that you can send and we'll include it on the webpage for this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com so people can see what what it takes to turn CO2 into textiles. That would be really cool. Yeah, absolutely. We can do like a step-by-step picture. (laughs) Great. Okay. We we will include it. That would be awesome. Let me ask you, Nika, obviously you grew up in Northern California and you were around a lot of people who thought about starting companies, who were starting companies. There's not many people who are thinking at like 15, I'm going to go intern at a a prestigious lab and start publishing papers, let alone to start a company at, 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 at an early age as well. But yet you were in that milieu. So I presume that there are many other ideas that you have as well for companies that you think could do really good in the world, but that because you're focused on Ruby here, you're not able to do. So let me ask you, like, what do you wish that somebody else would start? Some other cool technology or idea that might help climate change or some other issue about which you're passionate that you're not going to do, but maybe some listener will do. Yeah, I love that question. And that's so like spot on. I've always had an idea book and have always like, I still to this day, like have so many technologies and things that I want to bring to life and all of that. So yeah, for anyone listening, I think there's a few key areas that are so important going into the near future for climate and sustainability. I think one really big area is in thermal energy delivery for industry and The reason I say that is when you look at the top three supply chains that are most CO2 polluting and sort of break down, like, okay, where does all this CO2 come from? The majority of it comes from having to deliver a very high energy density to certain processes. And so it's quite hard to do that today through renewable energy. But if we had a better way to store renewable energy and then deliver that energy through thermal processes or higher density, basically energy delivery so that we could run those processes that need heat or need some other types of energy. That's a very big chunk of the problem. And I think there's a few cool companies that are are doing that now and maybe getting started, but I think it's such a huge area. That and then also just generally one thing I like to think about is unlocking abundance in areas where there's scarcity. I think one really cool thing that has always caught my attention is sand is a material that's used like so widely in lots of different building materials and concrete and or cement and other things. And this crazy stat where the buildings in Dubai, like they, it's in a desert, but they ship that sand from Australia because it's just like the certain type of sand (laughs) that needs to make these materials. And so I think it's a cool problem statement. Like, how can you take all this abundant 
material, in this case, sand, and turn it into the useful type of material that can then go into our building materials. So we don't have to rely on these scarcity principles, or a lot of it ends up like ruining coastline and rivers and and that sort of stuff. But yeah, two two things that have always been interesting to me. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, the sand idea is one that I've thought about because during the pandemic, it it was the case that the vials, like the glass vials that the vaccines came in were like a very special type of sand that is like only from like one beach on the planet, basically, because it had to be able to withstand like super low temperatures. This glass had to like withstand super low temperatures. And so it was like, there was like actually a concern about whether you're making like billions of these vaccines, basically, and each one of them is a separate vial. And there's only so much of that sand. So like, it is an interesting question. Like, how can you create a, maybe through, maybe it's through an enzymatic process you would be interested in to convert the sand that you're going to find in, in like in the Middle East to use Dubai as an example to create something that is more valuable. So yeah, not many, not many people think of sand when they think about innovation, but maybe that's a ripe one for, for innovation. That's pretty interesting. All right, totally. well, and a great yeah. book to go along with that is, I think it's called like The World in a Grain or something like that. And that was the inspo for that idea. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we'll find out the the exact title of that book and include it in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. So yeah. if it's not The World in a Grain, look it up on our website and we'll, we'll have the actual <laughs> thing there for you after this episode is recorded. But that's really cool. Yeah, very, very interesting. I, I'm going to definitely be looking more into that. So you've already recommended one book here, The World in the Grain or something similar to that. But let me ask you, Anika, like obviously you have been reading for a long time. So maybe there are other books that have been inspirational for you in your own entrepreneurial journey. Are there any books or any other resources that you would recommend to somebody who is inspired by the path that you've taken with Ruby and think, hey, let me recommend this to you because it was useful for me? Yeah, definitely. I think books similar to A World in a Grain or whatever the title is have always been really helpful for me to dive into just specific areas that I might know nothing about or just bring sort of new perspectives and problems to mind. Uh, There's another one called Rivers of Power that was very interesting about like issues with fresh water and brackish water and rivers. And I think if you like Google similar books to some of those books, you might find some some other great ones. But it's basically overviews of kind of technical or science issues, but with commentary about like current global challenges. And I think the other like holy grail just thing that I think was so helpful for me starting my company was the How I Built This podcast. I've just been listening to that like throughout college. And it was just so helpful to hear so many different perspectives and stories of starting a company. And I think it just really gives anyone the skill set. It's really remarkable how many people comment on that podcast, which I also really like. I I think it's a great podcast, (laughs) but it's really remarkable how many people comment on that. And I have hypothesized that there is an entire generation of companies that have been started by people who listen to that podcast who thought that person could do it. Why couldn't I? And I'll tell you, I I thought about this with regard to like my own life, because about five and a half years ago, I put out a book about entrepreneurs who are trying to revolutionize the meat industry by creating slaughter-free meat. And I, before writing the book, thought of these people as like these like superheroes who really were doing this amazing thing and that they must be particularly genius. And upon interviewing them and learning their stories, I realized they are superheroes in some sense, right? They're doing something that's really important for the world. 
but that many of them had no experience whatsoever prior to starting these companies. It's like yeah. they, were micro, they weren't microbiologists. They weren't food scientists. They didn't have an MBA from Harvard. Like these were just people who cared deeply about a problem and they decided I'm going to try to take this on. And that is what I really love about how I built this podcast is that you talked to all the, you, excuse me, that they talked to all these people who had virtually no experience. Like nobody would think, oh yeah, you should be the one to go start a company. Yeah. And, and yet they still find ways to succeed and uh, including having a lot of adversity along the way. So I really like hearing those stories. And, and after writing this book, it's called Clean Meat. I came to the conclusion, like, the people who are doing these are just as dumb as I am. Like, what? If they can do it, why <laughs> can't I do it? Important. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's such an important realization. And I like constantly remind myself of that, even throughout the starting a company journey, because there's always challenges that you run into. And it's, it's just like good to think like no one knows what they're doing and everyone's just figuring it out. And even yeah. these massive companies that have been around for hundreds of years or innovations and inventions that we like, refer to in history, like no one really knew what they were doing and they just like followed an interest or they just figured it out. Yeah. Um, or, or, and that or there just was, or, me too. Yeah. Or there was like an accident that they didn't intend to happen where they learned something yeah. from that. Yeah. yeah right. right. Okay. Well, on, on that note, it's good to end with some humility here. So I appreciate that very much, Nika. And I really appreciate what you're doing. I'll look forward to hopefully wearing a pair of Ruby jeans sometime, or presumably there will be like Stella McCartney jeans that have been made with Ruby's <laughs> textiles. But I look forward to that someday. My wife would be particularly happy since I wear the same pair of jeans every day. So that would be a, a benefit <laughs> for her as well. So hopefully that'll come to pass soon. But we'll be rooting for your success and looking forward to seeing not just more fundraising success, but more commercialization success so you can have the impact that you're really seeking to have here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.